Praise God. Praise God for this. Jesse's making his way up here. I surprised him by coming up too. Jesse's our preacher today, and I want to pray for him. This is not his usual place. He's usually up behind here, and uh, I just want to lift him up to the Lord for us this together. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, I thank you for this morning, that as we gather here, that we are in your presence, and you are the one who's going to minister to us this morning. And I lift Jesse up to you, that you're going to anoint him for your purposes, that we can celebrate your word together and hear you. And we give him to you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, great start. Yeah. <laughs> well, good morning, James North. This is really weird. I got to be honest. This is normally when I like go down and get to sit through somebody else preaching. Um, so, yeah, this is a little strange. Um, before I even begin, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, the amount of support that I have felt this week has been unlike any like other time in ministry that I've ever experienced or ever in my life, to be totally honest. like Just the amount of people that said they were praying for me, um, I, I felt those prayers so deeply. It actually got to the point where one day I was walking, uh, I was walking to church um, one morning and I was like so aware of God's people's prayers for me that I was like, Lord, I think I have to start tricking the church into thinking that I preach every week, that I'm going to start preaching every week just so that I can experience this every week because I seriously am so, so thankful for the support that I have felt <laughs> There's signs over there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh man, that's going to make me cry. <laughs> um, but beyond even just this week, I just want to say thank you so much to this church um, for how, uh, you know, just over two years ago, this church welcomed me in. The support and the grace that you've given, given me. Um, sorry, I just saw Amos, and that's going to make me cry now, too. Um, uh, I consider being here such a grace from God. Um, the fact that I get to be a part of this church and this community. Um, so much uh, you all taking a chance on me. Um, and uh, the fact that I come in, I came in with so little experience, and um, that you have given yourselves as this church to provide a place for me to gain experience. And for the graciousness that you have given me, um, I just want to say thank you so much. I, uh, yeah, I'm just so thankful that this is the first church that I ever get to preach at. I just think that's just so wonderful. So I, yeah, I love this church so deeply and I'm so thankful to be here. And um, yeah, before I cry, let's, uh, let's get into the text. Um, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19 today. Um, but would you just pause with me? I'm going to pray again because I just need it. Um, Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to dive into your word. Thank you for freely giving us your word that we might understand you and what we've been brought into um, more. Lord, thank you that your spirit is in us and that he brings to life these words, that these words are eternal that they have power, and that they have power to transform our lives and our hearts. And God, we ask that you would do this. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We want to leave here more changed into the image of Jesus Christ. 
And so would you do that as we enter, uh, as we study your word today? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we will be in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. As we, we turn there, I just want to give a little bit of background to where we've been in the last few weeks. So we've started this new series uh, that kind of goes from Elijah to Elisha, this idea of succession, um, because that's kind of where we're at as a, as a church. Um, for context, Israel is apostate at this time in, in history. Fortunately, that's not where we are at as a church, um, but... Israel is apostate from God. They have walked away from God, um, and they are under this king named Ahab. Ahab, Derek kind of walked us through this in, in the first series. In 1 Kings chapter 16, Ahab is described as a man that did more wickedness than any kings before him and did more to provoke God than any other kings um, before him. So this is the kind of king that is ruling Israel at this point. Um, Ahab then marries this foreign woman named Jezebel, and this Je Jezebel is a worshiper of Baal. Um, and as Ahab and Jezebel worship Baal, Israel follows suit as well. Israel is worshiping Baal, um, they are apostate from God, and so Elijah gets sent by God to call Israel out. And so Paul walked us through last week, Elijah gets sent um, to essentially expose Israel for the beliefs that they have. He says, how long will you go on limping between these two opinions? How long will you go between Baal and, and God? You can't have it both ways, just pick one. And they can't even answer. So he proposes this showdown of sorts to prove who is the true God. And the Israelite people, after they see that God sends down fire and proves himself to be the true God, they're like, okay, this is God. Um, Yahweh is the true God. And they kill the, prophet, the prophets of Baal. Elijah actually, at the end of chapter 18, tells Ahab to go get a drink. He tells, he instructs Ahab in some things. And Ahab actually listens. So I think at this point, Elijah sees like almost a glimmer of hope that maybe this, is, this moment on Mount Carmel is what God is going to use to change the course of Israel's history um, or to change where Israel is at at this point, that they would turn from their wicked ways and come to a God that gives life. But when Ahab goes back and tells Jezebel what happened, Jezebel doesn't even budge. In fact, she's more angry than she even was before. So that's where... This picks up in verse 1 of chapter 19. So if you'll follow along with me there. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. So here we find Elijah. He sees 
God do this absolutely incredible display of power. And the result is not that Israel has changed, but actually that things have gotten even worse for him. Despite seeing God doing this undeniable act of power, Israel remains apostate and Elijah's life is threatened. And Elijah is so discouraged. And we find him here weary, afraid, lonely, and he just wants to die. But what we'll see is that just as God was with Elijah in that moment on Mount Carmel, when God did that incredible act of power, God is with Elijah in his discouragement and in his fear, and he's working even when Elijah doesn't see it or, or when Elijah doesn't understand what God is doing. So first, we see Elijah's humanity. I started this book recently, um, and this book kind of outlines, uh, it, it's kind of contrasts the characters of, that we see in the Bible and the characters we see in Roman and like Greek mythology. And they were talking about how in Greek and Roman mythology, they would create these, these characters or these heroes um, that would essentially be like people to aspire to. You'd have people like Achilles or Hercules or these, these kind of like demigods that they portray in such a way with such uh, heroic abilities and such fearlessness that they would try and inspire their own cultures to emulate that kind of character. And people have been like, oh, okay, well, actually, like the Bible does that too. You know, they have Hector, uh, we have David. They had Hercules, we have Samson. Uh, they have Odysseus, we have Abraham. But I think when people say that, what they're very, very uh, clearly missing is that the Bible doesn't do a great job of elevating heroes. The Bible is not very quick to shy away from the insecurities and the failures and the mistakes of these heroes that we elevate or that we think to elevate. Because we'll have these pictures in our mind of like David slaying Goliath and we're like, wow, hero. We have this, this picture of Moses parting the Red Sea and we're like, wow, hero. And then we get a glimpse into their lives and we're actually made aware of the kind of people that they are. Um, this is a quote from that book. Moses was constantly afraid and frustrated. David was prone to malicious cover-ups. Abraham lost his patience and splintered the family tree into generations of hostility. So these are the kind of men that, that we truly get to see into their lives. They're humans. They're not these heroes that we put on a pedestal that we aspire to. They're humans that we can relate to. I think the Bible does a better job of exposing us through these heroes than it does inspire us. The Bible exposes us through these people more than it inspires us. And I think it's the same thing that we find with Elijah here. I think sometimes we forget that these people in the Old Testament, like David and Moses and Elijah, were just people, just humans, just people that had our same nature. But James actually makes it abundantly clear Elijah was just like us. He says in chapter 5, 17, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And so here we find 
Elijah, he takes part in this incredible moment with God. And in the very next moment, when he doesn't see these results that he's expecting to see, he's discouraged, he feels completely alone, and he's afraid. It, it reminds me of um, this, a story in the, in the New Testament of Peter, where Jesus is out walking on the water, and the disciples see him walking on the water, and Peter says, Lord, call me out that I might walk on the water with you. And Jesus calls him, and Peter actually gets to take part in this incredible moment with Jesus where he is walking on the water to Jesus. And he's walking on the water as long as his eyes are fixed on Jesus. But as soon as he stops, as soon as he looks around and he sees these giant waves and fear starts to creep in, he starts to sink. And I think it's the same thing that happens with Elijah here, where he takes his mind, he takes his eyes off of what God has called him to do, and he focuses on Jezebel's threats, and he starts to sink. But let's just pause here for a second, because I think it's very easy to look at Elijah and be like, like, how could you do this? You know, you just saw God on Mount Carmel, you know, show himself to be the true God. How, how could you do this? But aren't we just like this? I don't think we can point the finger at Elijah too much here because there are times in my life where I've experienced incredible times of provision. And then two weeks later, all receive an unexpected bill or an unexpected ex expense. And what's our, first, what's our first response? It's fear. It's like, Lord, how are you gonna provide for this? I don't even think you can, this is too big. Right after seeing, a, after seeing a lifetime of the Lord provide for us. Or we'll pursue a door that we think the Lord has opened for us and we'll put all this work and all this effort into pursuing this door and we finally get to this door and we find that the door is closed. And we're like, Lord, this door was it. Like, I know for sure you were calling me to here. Do you even have my good in mind? Like, do you really actually have what's best for me? If we're being honest, that's where our hearts go. Or moments where we'll experience deep, in, intimate moments of God's presence where we're so aware of his moving and his presence in our lives, and then we'll go through dry seasons where it, we can't sense his nearness. And all of a sudden, it's like, God, are you, are you there? Are you even near? Are you even, are you even with me? So I think Elijah is not alone in this moment because he actually has all of humanity at least this room, hopefully, it's not just me, that can empathize with Elijah in this. And Elijah comes to this broom tree and he asks that he might die. That's how low Elijah is in this moment right now. He says, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Saying, just like with my fathers before me, just like with the prophets before me, Nothing has changed. Israel still remains. And he's like, I don't want to get killed by Jezebel. So Lord, just take my life yourself. And he falls asleep under this broom tree. And I, I think it's with the hope that he never actually wakes up. 
Look at verse five. Take my life, I am no better than my father's. And he falls asleep under this broom tree. I think he just never wants to wake up. That's the low point that Elijah is at. But what do we see instead? How does God respond to Elijah? Secondly, we see God's gracious comfort. And behold, this is uh, the second half of five, verse five. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Elijah is in desperate need of comfort here. He wants to die, but instead of the Lord taking his life, as he asks, Elijah wakes up to the, ta- to the touch of the angel of the Lord and a meal. We don't actually see it in the first time through, but we see it the second time through, that this angel of the Lord is actually the angel of the Lord. And we see this, the angel of the Lord, all throughout the Old Testament, um, which we've come to, to know as being a theophany. A theophany being the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord being the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ before he took on flesh. The second person of the triune God. And he comes to meet with Elijah to encourage him, to touch him, to strengthen him. Does this, the way that he interacts with Elijah, look familiar? Do we see his gentle character here? Do we see that Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever? I can't help but think of Matthew 11 when I read this text. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This provision that Elijah is given Um, It would have had to remind him of a couple chapters earlier when Derek walked us through um, when Elijah is met by ravens and ravens bring him this food. Only this time, God does not provide for him with ravens, but instead meeting with him as the pre-incarnate Christ, as the angel of the Lord. And he says to Elijah, Elijah, this journey is too great for you. This journey is too great for you. Have you been there? Maybe, maybe some of you are there right now where the journey just feels too great for you. Or the Lord has called you to something that just feels too big, too overwhelming. Or you're just too weary to go on. The weight of it just feels too heavy. 
and you just want to go take a nap. And honestly, there's biblical reason to go take a nap. <laughs> Never underestimate the power of a good meal and a good nap. I think that's in the text. That's justified. Um, or maybe you're discouraged by your own life, by your own sin. You just, you keep coming back to the same things. You don't see change. And you're like, God, how could you even be working right now? Or you don't see any change in your family or your friends. And you're just so tired. And you look ahead to a whole lifetime of like, of just doing this. Of saying no to sin. Of fighting that same sin of battling against fear and you're like lord how can i keep doing this for another whether it's 10 20 40 50 years how can i keep doing this it's so much time to just keep fighting this fight how how can i do this <laughs> and jesus says the journey is too great for you you can't. So take my yoke upon you. Stop trying to pull the weight of this on your own because you can't. Walk this walk in the strength that I provide. Take my yoke on you for it's easy and it's light. And so the Lord provides for him physically but I think he also just comforts Elijah with his presence, with his touch. And I think what we see in this portion is that where there is commission, there is sustaining. Where the Lord calls us and where the Lord sends us, he will sustain us. I'm, I've just been so convinced and so burdened by this point that church, if we are unconvinced that the Lord will sustain us and provide for us in the areas that he calls us, we will never actually follow him into those places. That if we don't know for sure that the Lord will provide for us wherever he calls us, we won't do it. And so I think the encouragement we can take in this portion is that the Lord will sustain us where he calls us. The Lord will provide for us. The Lord will meet with us. He will hold us. He will keep us where he sends us. And so Elijah travels 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And this is also, uh, also known as Mount Sinai. And here we see, thirdly, God's word to Elijah. Elijah comes to this cave and no doubt, weary from this journey again, 40 days and 40 nights, um, falls asleep again. And the Lord comes to him and he simply asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Um, I interned at this camp in Pennsylvania. I think it was about, it was five years ago. I actually got a memory uh, notification this week and I was like, five years Oh my goodness, five years ago, um, where I interned at this camp in Pennsylvania, and it was a, it was a missions-type camp. 
I interned with five other people, um, and we kind of oversaw the camp, similar to how Cross Trainers runs. Um, but we had directors over us, and there was this, it was this couple uh, named the Allens, and they had three little girls, and they were just the most wonderful, godly, intentional people. And they would just invite us into their homes, invite us into their life. And I think one of the things that they did so well that I still remember to this day is how they would ask questions. They would invite us to go on a walk with them, to check in on us and see how we were doing. And it's like they were able to get to the core of our beings, not by like pointing out things, but by pulling out things. And they would do this by asking the most intentional questions. It's like they could unlock the heart just through how they were able to ask questions. Because I think, sometimes they would ask questions just because they didn't know the answer. But I think they knew that it was better to ask us questions when they would see things in our lives that they wanted to point out or pull out. They knew it was better for us to answer questions and come to those realizations on our own than to simply say, I see this in your life, or why are you doing this in this way? That's insecurity, or that's whatever, whatever. And so as they were asking these questions, it would pull from our hearts what was truly inside. And I think that's like a a smaller version of what God does when he asks questions. We see God asks questions quite a bit through scripture. Um, He asks Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? He asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? Jesus asks, who touched me? And in all these situations, it's not Jesus or it's not God asking because he does not know. God knows why it happened, who did it, uh, the heart motives behind it. God, God knows it all. But he asks questions, I think, for a couple reasons. And there are probably more, but here's, I think, a couple that we see. One, to give the answerer, the answerer, an opportunity to express what's on their heart. I think that's, it's so kind how the first thing God does when he meets with Elijah is to ask Elijah a question. Where are you, Elijah? God could have come in and said, Elijah, you know, you are wallowing in self-pity. Elijah, go back and, and speak to my people. Your, your job here is not done. But instead, he invites Elijah, where, or what are you doing here, Elijah, to just express what's on Elijah's heart? So kind, so gracious of God to give Elijah that opportunity to just express what's on his heart. And he just listens to him. But I think, sec- secondly, in asking questions like Nathan and Rachel Allen would do with me, they are able, he is able to draw from the depths of people what's truly in them. And as people answer the questions, they are actually exposed to what's inside of them. It's, it's like he asks these, these layered questions that kind of like invite the answerer to be as vulnerable as they desire to be. He asks these questions that like you could answer at a surface level or you could answer at a deeper level. For example, with Cain and Abel, he asks, where is your brother Abel? Not, why did you kill your brother Abel? 
or Adam and Eve. He doesn't ask, why did you take from the tree? He asks, where are you? And I think in doing so, it invites, it invites Adam and Eve to either say, oh, we're, we're just over here, you know, we're in the bushes, we're fine. Like, or, God, we've been made aware of our sin before you, and we're trying to cover ourselves up. It invites them immediately to, ex- to come back into intimacy with God, to express what is truly happening in their heart. And I, I think that's what he's doing here with Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's deeper than just a, what are you doing here at Mount Sinai? It's what's really going on here. And Elijah responds with, I have been very jealous for the Lord, verse 10, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. It's essentially saying, Lord, nothing has changed. Your people still don't follow you. I've done what you've asked. They want to kill me and I'm the only one left. That's Elijah's heart right now. And this is how the Lord responds. Verse 11. And the Lord says, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. I love how that that ends because God calls Elijah to, to stand out on the mount. And by the end of all these incredible acts of power, Elijah is very much back in the cave, which is fair. Because picture these acts with me. A wind that tore the mountain and breaks rocks in pieces. I don't, that is just terrifying to me. Breaks rocks in pieces, tears the mountain apart, but the Lord is not there. He's not in an earthquake, and he's, not, and he's not even in the fire, which we see. Mount Carmel, chapter 18, the Lord came down in fire. The Lord is not even in the fire. What does he speak through? It's this voice or this sound of a low or crushed, thin, fine whisper. All of these, these uh, words or interpretations to give this idea that it's so small. It's so quiet compared to these incredible acts of power. So why, why that? Why the still small voice? What is God trying to communicate to Elijah here? Let's keep going for a sec and we'll come back to that. God asks Elijah again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds in the exact same way. And so, kind of summarize, this is God's response to Elijah. Okay, return on your way to Damascus. Keep doing what I've told you to do, but my role for you has changed. I will judge Israel and hold them accountable. I will give you a ministry partner who will be your successor. 
And you don't see it, Elijah, but I have 7,000 prophets in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not alone. I think one of, I'm sure there are a host of reasons why God uses this still small voice, but I think one of the reasons he uses this still small voice is to say, Elijah, I decide how I work. Because think back, all of these incredible acts of power would have been reminiscent of other times in history when God revealed himself and when God showed up in mighty acts of power. The wind, the earthquake, the fire, the fire very, very clearly being the most recent one. And I think it's to say, Elijah, sometimes I am not going to work in the ways that you expect. Sometimes it's not going to be through the big and miraculous. Sometimes I'm not going to change Israel through the fire, all-consuming of this altar. Sometimes it's going to be through this group of 7,000 that I have protected. Sometimes it's through the little things that you don't even see that I'm doing. Sometimes it's in these small things. I'm working. Elijah, I decide how I choose to work. I decide if it's going to be through the big or the small. He's saying, Elijah, you're not alone. Just as I was with you in the high moment of Mount Carmel, where you were so convinced that I was working and you were so convinced that this was going to be what changed Israel, I was still working. And I'm still here with you now, and I'm still working now. I'm working and I'm with you both when you see it and both when you don't. In a consuming fire, I'm working, and in a still, small voice that you can hardly hear unless you're paying attention to it, I'm working and I'm speaking and I'm acting. I want to change gears for a second because over the last few weeks as I've been preparing, I've like, I've had this thought that like, man, if Elijah can't do it, how am I supposed to do it? Like if Elijah takes part in ravens coming to him, feeding him, seeing God provide for this, for this widow through a jar of oil that never runs out. If Elijah sees God come down in an all-consuming fire and show himself to be God, if Elijah can meet with the pre-incarnate Christ and be touched by him and fed by him, if Elijah can hear the voice of God and still be this low and this discouraged, how am, I, how am I ever supposed to do it? I think like, man, like sometimes I think back to these, these people in the Old Testament and I'm like, man, like if David couldn't do it, how am I supposed to do it? David was a man after God's own heart. If Elijah can't do it, how am I supposed to be able to do this? A lifetime, a lifetime to go. How am I supposed to be able to do this? But I want to point out some 
areas that I've been encouraged some reasons that I think because of our position on this side of Christ, we've actually been, we actually get to experience fully what Elijah only got to experience partially. That what we've been brought into on this side of Christ is actually far, far better than what Elijah could ever experience, which is amazing to think about. So I hope this is encouraging. First, we do not have a spirit of fear. At the beginning of this story, we see Elijah so afraid. He's so discouraged by not seeing God move, by not seeing God act in the way that he would think, that when he's threatened by Jezebel, he's afraid for his life and he runs. But there's, a, there's actually a difference between Elijah and us. And the, the prophets in the Old Testament and, and other people in the Old Testament, it says would experience the Spirit of God for a time. The Spirit of God would come upon them for a time. But we have been given God's Spirit permanently to indwell us. Forever we have God's Spirit. And what does 2 Timothy 1 say? We do not have a spirit of fear. We have, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but what? But one of power and of love and of self-control. That means in, in those moments when we're so tempted to give in to fear, we have God's spirit in us to actually give us power and love and self-control with which to overcome that fear. Forever, there will never be a time in our life when we will not have this spirit of power and love and self-control in our hearts with which to battle against the fear that we experience. Secondly, our Savior knows our pain. Elijah did not fully know the ministry of Jesus Christ as the one who knows his suffering, who's been through it and can enter into it Church, we've seen it. We've read it. We know the extent through the life and death of Christ. We are able to see more clearly into the ministry of Jesus Christ than Elijah could. Hebrews 2, 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When we are being tempted to fear, when we are tempted to be discouraged, we know that because Jesus took on flesh, he can help those who are being tempted. He can help those because he experienced it himself. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. I think this is, this is the most amazing, the most amazing truth. Beyond just sympathy, Beyond just understanding what we're going through, Jesus experienced all of what we go through. But even before we get to that, 
Jesus understands it. Jesus experiences it. We, we even see this human to human, right? Like when there is somebody that has gone through a trial that we have gone through, it immediately creates this sense of unity, this sense of bond, this sense of being seen and understood by the other person. Isn't that true? When somebody else has gone through the same hardship as us, we can step into that and say, I, I know what that's like. I, I feel that pain with you. I can actually enter into that pain with you because I've, under, because I've been there and I've understood it. It's the same thing with Jesus. When we feel alone like Elijah did, Jesus truly understands what that's like. Only Jesus experienced it to the utmost. Think Elijah. Elijah felt incredibly alone. And all throughout this story, God shows Elijah, Elijah, you're not alone. I have these prophets. I'm with you. Jesus experienced true aloneness. Like aloneness to the maximum. There was no element of loneliness that Jesus did not fully experience. I think it's, I think Derek shared this quote before, but it's, it's from um, Keller. It's something along the lines of um, that on the cross, Jesus Christ experienced true aloneness, rejected by God and man. Who else was there to accept him? to make him feel like he was not alone. Jesus Christ experienced true aloneness so that you and I would never have to feel alone again or ever have to be alone again. Jesus Christ experienced all of loneliness, true aloneness, that when he was on that cross taking my place and taking your place, he experienced true loneliness, loneliness to the utmost so that we would never have to experience loneliness does God, does Christ know what it means to be alone? Yes, more than we ever will. And so because of that, he is able to enter in to bear that loneliness with us. Our Savior knows our pain. Thirdly, we behold God with unveiled faces. We can become, we can come boldly before God. Both Moses and Elijah, they meet with God on this mountain. Mount Sinai is super significant in that way. Moses and Elijah both meet with God on this mountain. But with Moses, God has to cover him in his hand as he passes by. With Elijah, he has to wrap his face in this cloak because he knows if he doesn't, both of them know, because if they don't, they will die. But we all, 2 Corinthians 3, but we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. No longer do we timidly approach God's throne. No longer do we have to approach God's throne as somebody unclean to somebody clean, as somebody who has to wrap their face so as to make them acceptable before God. We behold God with unveiled face because, because of what Christ did on our behalf, we have been brought into righteousness, an identity of righteousness, that when we come before God, 
We come before God as somebody declared and seen as righteous. We come before God as someone righteous to someone righteous. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Hebrews 4 continues on. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We no longer have to go to a mountain. We no longer have to meet in a church at any time. We can come before God to find help in time of need at any time, boldly. Then we think, but if we could just hear his voice, but if he could just, if we could literally just hear him. When Jesus ascended to his seat of authority, he did not leave us as orphans. He did not leave us alone. Fourthly, we have in us God's spirit forever. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That's Jesus. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. But if we could just hear him, church, who knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit inside him, right? Who knows truly what's going going on inside of us except ourselves? It's the same thing with God. Who knows God's innermost but the spirit of God? And the spirit of God has been given to us to dwell in us forever to make us more aware, to reveal more to us the depths of who God is, to make God's word come alive in us, that when we pray together, we see God's grace and his mercy more, that we sense his direction and his leading through the voice of a friend through the, the voice of a church member who deeply loves the Lord and is sensing God's spirit. But if we could just hear his voice, God, guys, we have God's spirit to dwell in us forever. God forever in us, revealing more and more of himself to us. So church, as he calls us and he leads us into things that we that might not make any sense to us at all, that we may not understand, to continue to be faithful in that ministry where it's just we don't see anything changing. And we're like, God, how could you be working in this ministry? How could you be working here? I don't see anything. When God tells you to be, continue on faithfully in that ministry. When he tells you to take that step of faith towards that thing, that you know the Lord has pressed on your heart and you are terrified. We do not have a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and self-control. We know that our Savior, we know that it won't be easy along the way, but we know that our Savior knows our pain and enters into it with us to bring us help in time of need. 
And we have the opportunity to come boldly into the presence of God to find grace and mercy in our time of need. And we have God's spirit, God's presence forever in us, in the highs and the lows, to lead us and to guide us that we may understand more what we have been freely given in Jesus Christ. And he has sealed us until the day of redemption. Let's pray. Father, thank you for inviting us into this plan of grace that you have had planned before time even began to invite us in. Lord, that as we sang, I will rise as Christ was raised to life. That we know, it is our confidence, that as Jesus was the firstborn of many, that we will be raised to life also. Lord, what hope for us in our highs and our lows when we don't see you working, when we can't understand what you're doing. Lord, that you have been gracious to us, that you have given us your Holy Spirit, a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Lord God, what a firm foundation we have in this life. God's presence in us forever. And Lord, the confidence that we can have that as you lead us and you guide us into things that we can't understand and we are afraid Lord, that we know you have sealed us to the day of redemption, that you will keep us. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.